Lord, as we reflect on the words of King David 3,000 years ago, uh, may his journey as a believer and the things he wrestled with as a believer uh, resonate true with our hearts today. And may the truths he saw about who you are and how you work in the world also therefore help us, particularly as we live in a world of injustice and suffering. Please, we pray, may this help us to live in a way which is shaped uh, by a biblical framework. To your glory we ask. Amen. It was on a Saturday morning in August 2000 that we got the call uh, advising us that our father had collapsed. Uh, one hour later, our worst fears were confirmed. My father was declared dead. I've recounted this to you before. Over the months and the years that followed, at different times and in different ways, I found myself asking, asking the question, why? Why? Uh, my father was just 62. Uh, he was a very godly minister, uh, and he had so much more to give. With another 20 years, he could have done so much more good. Why, Lord, did you take him? I don't get it. And indeed, my mother had been looking forward to many happy years together in retirement. And now she faced difficult, lonely years in which the why question would never be far from her lips. At the time, I had just taken a voluntary redundancy from my job at British Airways, and I'd done that in order to take a full-time, one-year Bible preaching course. But with my father's unexpected death just before the course started, everything was thrown up into the air. That year then became a huge model of completing, competing priorities. We had to manage the estate. Uh, we had to find my mother a house, uh, buy it, fit it out, and then move my mum in. And what I had hoped would be a year of fruitful, reflective study in God's Word descended into a seething and frustrating mass of conflicting demands on my time. Why, Lord? Why? Have you ever said, why, to God? I'm sure you have. For it all of us in different times and different places and different situations have said that. Why have you allowed this to happen to me? Why have you not answered my prayers? If you're all loving and all powerful, why has this happened? Why didn't you stop that thing from going wrong in my life or the lives of those I love? And that's why question also then hovers at the back of our mind when we look out, not just at our immediate circumstances, but out on the world. When we read about and we hear about the suffering church, we say, why, Lord? Why can you allow this level of suffering and oppression of your people? And when we see on the political stages of world history and on the news, the daily news, uh, oppression and injustice uh, often by despots and tyrants, uh, where many people suffer, we ask the question, why? Why, Lord, don't you intervene? Well, this why question is a question that King David was asking when he opens the, the psalm which we just read. He opens with these words, why, O Lord, why? Look at verse 1. 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Uh, The particular focus of David's question is that God seems to be distant. God seems to be hiding. Uh, Things are going wrong. Uh, David is praying to God about it, and yet nothing is changing. God seems to be distant. And so he's saying, where are you? Why do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself from me? Hide and seek is a fun game for children, but it's not such a great game when it's God who is hiding. When he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. When it feels like we're ringing, but nobody is picking up. Have you experienced that with God? Is it maybe where you find yourself at the moment? God seems distant, far off. You're praying about something, but God does not seem to be there. He doesn't seem to answer, and you say, why, Lord? I don't often travel by trains. I'm a bit of a a private transporter file, but I do recall on one occasion when I did, and uh, the train stopped in a tunnel. And everyone was left in total darkness. It was quite a long tunnel. And I sat there for what seemed like an eternity. Uh, there was no announcement, uh, no explanation, just silence. And I didn't know what was up. And as I sat there, powerless and uninformed, the case for private transport grew ever stronger in my mind. Sometimes it can feel like that with God. It can feel like we're stuck in a tunnel in the darkness, and the driver is silent. There will be times when we feel perplexed. There will be times when we feel things just don't add up. There will be times when we say, why, Lord? The first thing to note from this psalm is this. To say, why, Lord, is the right thing to be saying. It is not ungodly. It's what King David says to the Lord Almighty. Of course, they were also some of the dying words of King David's greater son, King Jesus. Remember what he says on the cross as he dies there. Why, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? So you see, crying out, why, Lord, it's a godly thing to do. It's part of the life of faith. It's interesting to actually contrast Psalm 10 with Psalm 9. Uh, Many commentators think they are deliberately linked. In chapter 9 um, and verse 9, David says this, The Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. But now in chapter 10, verse 1, he says this, Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's exactly the same phrase, and it's the, it only comes up in these two psalms. How can David's experience change so quickly? In times of trouble one moment, he's rejoicing in the Lord's protection the next. Well, that is what life is like, is it not? One moment, things are going well. Next minute, tragedy strikes. And our experience of God can change so quickly. And the point is this. It was true in David's experience. One minute, he could be trusting God and enjoying his presence with him in times of trouble. And the next, it seemed that God was 
very distant. Uh, We need, as Christians, to be ready for that in our Christian walk. There will be times in trouble when God may seem distant. And if we're not ready for that, it can throw us when it happens. But there's another important thing to notice in verse 1. I don't know if you did notice it, but what is David doing? Uh, Listen again to what he says. Verse 1 again. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What is he doing? I'm stating the obvious, but it's easy to miss. He's actually talking to God. He is praying to God. And that's what faith does. It keeps talking. It keeps praying, even in dark times. So you see, David hadn't given up on God. And he's not questioning whether God exists. He is indeed perplexed. He's frustrated. He's confused. He's disappointed. But he is still talking to God about it. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? And that's what faith does. It keeps the communication channels open. And that encourages us to keep praying, to keep talking to God about how we feel, to be honest with God, not to be disrespectful to Him, but nevertheless to pour out our hearts and to be honest with Him, to say, Lord, I don't get it. I'm disappointed in the situation. I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. Why don't you answer my prayer? In that way, we are honest with God. And in that way, we have a real relationship with God, expressing our hearts and pouring it out to Him. Let's next go on to look at uh, what is causing the particular grief and the frustration in David's heart. Because indeed, there are many different reasons as to why we may cry out, Why, Lord? Uh, It may be that things are going wrong in our lives, but it may be that things are happening out there in the lives of others or the world. And that is the case here in Psalm 10. What is getting to King David is that the wicked are oppressing the poor, and it seems they're getting away with it. Uh, David has just been watching the 10 o'clock news program, uh, Jerusalem Tonight, and he's appalled by what he's seen. And he wants God to step in and to act. Look at verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. Uh, David is distressed by what he sees in his world, uh, the wicked uh, pursuing their dark ends. And that, of course, is a theme and an experience which is familiar to us too today. Uh, Let's look more closely at the portrait of the wicked in verses 2 to 11. It's a pretty dark picture, actually. Uh, Firstly, uh, they reject God. Verse 3, he blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. Uh, Verse 4, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him, that is God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. People reject the God of the Bible, either because they worship other gods or like the people here, the wicked here, they want to think, eh, God won't bring me to account. Uh, They may acknowledge he's there, but they don't think that he's actually going to act. And that is very much uh, the situation in the West at the moment. 
just pushing God to the fringes, either saying he's not there, or if he is there, acting if he's not. This is a great book uh, by John Lennox. Uh, he's got the, a brain the size of a large pumpkin, uh, huge uh, intellect, and he's written this great book, Gunning for God, Why the New Atheists Are Missing the Target. Uh, it's very good, I'd re- recommend it to you. Let me quote from that book to you. He says this, Atheism is on the march in the Western world, noisily. A concerted attempt is still being made to marshal the atheist faithful, to encourage them not to be ashamed of their atheism, but to stand up and to fight as a united army. The enemy is God, and they are gunning for God. And the biggest gun has been Richard Dawkins. However, there is now an even bigger gun, Uh, the Cambridge theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, now passed away, of course. In his latest book, he claims there is now no room for God. Uh, We may feel, why doesn't God do something about this? How about maybe wonderfully bringing Richard Dawkins to faith in Jesus? Uh, That, of course, would make the front pages. Imagine the impact of that. It's interesting, though, to note, though, in verse 11, that the wicked atheist says, in the quietness of his heart, he says this. He says to himself, God has forgotten. So, you see, this guy, he may claim to be an atheist in theory, but in reality, he doesn't. He thinks, actually, God is there, but he has forgotten. Look at verse 13. He won't call me to account. He thinks he can get away with it. So, uh, this is true of many people today. Uh, Some are ardent atheists. Others may not be officially atheists, but practically they are atheists. They live as if there is no God there. They see him as an irrelevance. Uh, So that's the first aspect of the wicked. Uh, They reject God. The second is they oppress the poor. Uh, The wicked in the psalm are in hot pursuit of the poor. Look at verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. At verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Uh, But these wicked are pressed not just with words, but also with actions. Verse 8. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. Uh, It's a dark situation. Verse 10. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. And on top of all this, God seems to do nothing. Why, Lord? The world hasn't really changed, has it? Uh, The world today is full of such oppression, such injustice, and such violence. Uh, Those with power oppressing those without power. And different terms are used in the psalm to describe those on the receiving end of this oppression. Verse 2 describes them as the weak. Verse 8, the innocent. Verse 9, the helpless. Verse 14, the victim and the fatherless. Verse 18, the oppressed. And this is life for the vast majority in the wider world today. 
And it's also certainly the life for many of God's people in the world today. The persecuted church, they seem to be on the wrong side of history. They cry out to God, and we out cry out to God on their behalf. But the oppression of the church continues. A third trait of the wicked uh, here in Psalm 10 is that they have a good life. Uh, This is what adds insult to injury. The wicked oppressors have a great life. Verse 5, it says this. His ways are always prosperous. Uh, This reality is a recurring problem in the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? Remember Psalm 1? The righteous person was pictured as a fruitful tree. Uh, There we read, in all he does, he prospers. However, often it seems that in reality, that doesn't work. The wicked prosper, and the innocent poor, especially God's people, suffer and are oppressed. Why, Lord? Uh, The Australian media tycoon Kerry Packer was, as we know, hugely wealthy and powerful. Uh, He was also a brazen gambler. Whilst playing blackjack in London one year, he lost $8 million. Uh, He was that sort of guy. In 1990, he suffered a heart attack but survived. Uh, He was clinically dead for six minutes. And afterwards, uh, when he was revived, he cavalierly told an interviewer, Son, I've been to the other side, and let me tell you, there's nothing there. Why, Lord, do you let a person like this live on and mock you? Why do you allow him to survive a heart attack so he can live on and waste more money in the casinos? Why do that for him and not for my father who is living to serve you every day of his life? Consider also Jim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader. Uh, The 24 million people of North Korea are barely surviving, lacking basic necessities, lacking food, lacking shelter, and they are crushed by oppression. And indeed, the church is crushed by oppression. North Korea is the top of the persecuted church list, and yet... Their leader, Kim Jong-un, lives in luxury. In one year, the regime spent $30 million on alcohol, $37 million on electronic goods, and $8.2 million on luxury watches. Why, Lord? Why do you let the wicked prosper? And the fourth thing we see in the profile of the wicked here in Psalm 10 is this. They are proud. They are arrogant. They are full of themselves. Look at verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. Verse 3. He boasts the cravings of his heart. Verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. Verse 6. He says to himself, Nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. I 
thought that God said the proud would be humbled. But it doesn't seem to be the case. They seem to get away with it. The wicked oppressors are laughing all the way, it seems, to the bank. It is an ugly portrait of the wicked, and it takes up most of this psalm. Why? Why? What is the point that's being made? Why paint such a detailed picture of the wicked oppressors in the world? And the answer is this. The psalm is encouraging us to engage with reality. The psalm is saying, recognize that this is how life is in a fallen world. Uh, Sometimes as Christians, we may have a very naive framework for life which says this. If I'm faithful to God, then things will go well for me and work out well in my life. And if somebody isn't faithful to God and isn't a Christian, then things are not going to go well for them in their life. And I think that in my early years, uh, my unspoken assumption was this. But of course, as I've gone on in life, and as I've seen the reality, and as I've gone deeper into God's Word, that naive assumption has been challenged and changed. If we have that naive framework, we are on a collision course with reality. Sooner or later, we're going to smash into the roadblock of reality of life in a real fallen world, and it will be painful. And so what the psalm is doing, you see, is to encourage us to engage with reality and to have a biblical framework in place for understanding it. It's saying this, in this rebel world, those who mock God may well enjoy a life of wealth and power with little seemingly going wrong. And by contrast, God's people in this life often are going to be having a very hard time of things. Often it will seem that they are on the wrong side of history. And of course, we know that this is true because we have the ultimate proof of this. It is the experience, of course, of the only truly innocent, righteous man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has ever been so faithful to God as he, and yet no one has ever suffered so much as he. Now, I would suggest as we think about this for ourselves, uh, I would suggest to you that there is a spectrum of responses to living in an unjust fallen world. On one end of the spectrum, uh, some people feel utterly crushed, depressed, and paralyzed by the suffering and injustice they see, and it overwhelms them. Now, at the other end of the spectrum are people who live in a bubble, uh, either willfully or unintentionally. The suffering and the injustice out there has little impact on their daily lives. You know, we live, of course, in very fortunate circumstances here in Australia. All of us have money. Uh, We have jobs or stable lives in a country of peace. And the danger is this. We forget what reality is like for many people, millions of people out there, and particularly for the persecuted church. Uh, The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote that what many people want, he says, is, and I quote, personal peace, which he describes as this. He says they just want to be left alone and not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city. 
uh, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Uh, he continues, personal peace means wanting to have my personal life pattern undisturbed in my lifetime. I think Francis Schaeffer is onto something. But this concept of personal peace is not an option for Christians. So do you see where we're going? Uh, the purpose of this psalm is this. It's to open our eyes to what is going on out there in the world. And in many ways, the psalm rubs the fullness of the world in our faces. There is a lot of terrible suffering and injustice in the world. And the church in many countries is severely oppressed. And the, the psalm helps us to have a good response to that, to feel that pain and to engage with it. The psalm is this tool for upsetting us and disturbing us and driving us to action. And the question is this, what can we do? What can we do? Well, of course, we can pray. Uh, that was the whole point of what Peter Grieg was saying. Pray. That is what the, our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ say when they say to the West, this is how you can help us. The first thing is, pray for us. Uh, so please do. Uh, use prayer resources in your daily prayer times. Uh, go to the Open Doors website. They've got a great prayer calendar for each month. Elizabeth Yeager, of course, produces that wonderful prayer calendar for us every month as a church. And included on that are aspects of what we can pray for the church globally. Use these resources. Pray, even with a mustard seed of faith, because it makes a difference. And we can also actually have another way of making an impact, particularly for the persecuted church. We can give. Uh, what's particularly impressed uh, Tracy and myself as we've watched some of these uh, videos of Open Doors uh, is how in these real-life situations they have used money to, in very practical ways, even pro providing trauma counselling for Christians who have um, suffered severe persecution uh, in countries out there in the world. How amazing. What a great practical use of resources. And so if we give financially to Open Doors we know that they can use those resources to practically help and make a difference out there. So that's uh, what we can do. We can pray, we can give, and thirdly, we can keep trusting God. And that's what we see in verses 12 to 18. We keep trusting God, because this is where the psalm ends. Uh, David keeps trusting, he holds on, in his faith to the Lord. Uh, firstly, uh, David observes that the Lord sees and hears, and he reminds himself of this. Uh, although the wicked oppressors have a great time, and God seems to do nothing, David is confident that actually, at the end of the day, God is watching. Verse 14. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. Verse 17. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. And although the wicked may seem to be getting away with it, David is confident that God will call them ultimately to account. He prays in verse 12. He says this. 
Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. And he is confident that he will. Verse 15, he says this, Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness. That would not be, that wickedness that would not be found out. And David trusts that God will do this. David is confident that in his time, God will bring justice. Verse 17. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is on earth may terrify them no more. There will come a day when the wicked will oppress the fatherless and the weak no more. Do you see what the psalmist is focusing on? David is trusting God that a day of judgment will come. Uh, The wicked will one day be called to account. Justice will be done. And God will rescue his oppressed people. And on that day, those questions, why, Lord, will cease. And as we wait, God does encourage his people. Keep praying. Keep trusting. And indeed, keep acting. Helping the fatherless. Helping the oppressed. And so we need to have the same confidence as King David that there will be a day of judgment. Because without that, we slip into a council of despair. We need to hold firm to our belief in a final judgment in a culture which airbrushes it out. The reality is, of course, that many people deep down in their hearts do long for justice. And yet, if we were all to stand before God and we were to get justice without Christ, none of us would have a chance of standing before him. We would be banished according to justice. It's interesting in Romans chapter 3, the apostle quotes Psalm 10 verse 7 when he's painting there a picture of the total depravity of humanity. And then later in that section, he concludes his argument in verse 23, says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the distance between you and me and these oppressors out there is not as great as we would like to think. Actually, we're not in a different category of people because ultimately, at the end of the day, all have sinned. These dark oppressors are just a little bit further along the spectrum that we are all on. All have sinned and all will be called to account. And therefore, what hope is there? And we know we have one hope and one hope alone. And it is, of course, Jesus. And this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the poor who is oppressed by the wicked. Uh, Jesus is the man who cries out, Why, Lord, as he hangs abandoned on the cross. And Jesus is the wicked man being called to account and judged as he pays the price for our wickedness and he takes our sin on himself. So you see, if we trust in him, we can actually 
look forward to the day of judgment with confidence. We know that on that day, we ourselves will receive not the justice we deserve, but the mercy and grace that Christ has won for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are just as we live in a world where there is injustice and oppression, where the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous who trust you uh, suffer. We thank you that ultimately this psalm tells us that you will put the wrongs right. Therefore, we pray that our trust in Christ uh, will burn ever brighter in our hearts, uh, such that we can be confident of being ready for that day of judgment, uh, and that it will also continue to carry us forward now, that our faith in Christ, and as we reflect on his experience of life in this world, uh, that our faith in Christ will not falter in times of hardship, whether it be personally in our own life when we ask why, or as we look out in the world and we ask why. Please, we pray, help us to trust you and your good purposes for us and for your people. Amen.